Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So, wow. Wow. I think that is the first thing that needs to be said here, and that is not necessarily a good wow. A lot of crow to be eaten, a lot of egg on the faces of many of us who were calling for and predicting, I should say, a red wave election bordering on a red tsunami. I think some of us even had the temerity to say, and that did not transpire. That simply did not transpire. And we're going to kind of break down why that did not transpire. But we're recording this one week after the midterm elections. And, you know, it's worth just going back a week ago. All the data points, really everything that we talked about on this show going back months. And it's not like we were on, it's not like we were an outlier here. It's not like I was seeing what no one else was seeing. And the data said what they said. The incumbent party, the Democratic Party, facing a, a, a historically unpopular president with historically 40-year high inflation, an economy that as recently as just a month or so ago was formally in a recession. So how did the Republicans not capture on this? What exactly happened here? Well, it's first clarifying, actually, that the top-line takeaway, that namely that the red wave did not materialize and that Republicans have effectively lost Virtually all of the close races, virtually all of the close races, that is overstating it a little bit. One interesting data point that I've come back to a lot over this past week is Republicans actually won the national popular vote as far as the national congressional races are concerned. So for everyone who went across the country last Tuesday and voted for their congressional candidates for the U.S. House. As of the time of this recording, 51.5% of those votes tabulated have gone for Republicans. 47% have gone for Democrats. That's a four and a half point delta. Translated into an extremely narrow pickup in the House. As of this recording, Republicans are one seat away from formally taking a House majority. It appears that they will take that House majority by the skin of their very teeth. This week, we have competing leadership races in the House and the Senate. Perhaps we will get into that as well. So that is one interesting thing as well that the pundits and commentators and the election analysts are having to break down is in the past, you know, infamously in the 2000 presidential election, which went to George W. Bush by a count of 537 votes in the state of Florida, the 2016 presidential election where Hillary Clinton won the popular vote against Donald Trump. You know, there is ample recent evidence in recent elections of Democrats winning the popular vote, but the electoral college system, redistricting, U.S. congressional maps, the various 
means the various intermediaries and tools of America's constitutional order, at least in recent years, have tended to militate in favor of Republicans. But that didn't happen this year. Republicans won the national popular vote by, again, as of this, as of this recording, 4.5 points, but are barely going to take the House majority and have failed, have failed to recapture the Senate. Again, egg on the face of those of us. I will be the first to own up, guys. I was wrong. I was really wrong. And there is no shame in admitting that you messed up when you messed up. In the state of Arizona, one of the so-called big four races this cycle, Carrie Lake, who I and many others thought was headed for national future political superstardom, she narrowly, narrowly lost to Katie Hobbs, the Arizona Secretary of State. Blake Masters lost by a wider margin to Mark Kelly, the incumbent there, former astronaut, of course. In the state of Nevada, Republicans did retake the governor's mansion, Joe Lombardo. He will face a Democratic legislature, unclear how much he will be able to get done, but Republicans did recapture the governor's mansion in Nevada, although Adam Laxalt's the promising Senate candidate so narrowly lost. That race was a true nail-biter, but Catherine Cortez Masto will be going back to the Senate next term. They say Georgia, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are headed to a runoff. Warnock narrowly, narrowly eclipsed Walker in the vote, but neither got to that 50% margin, so there will be yet another runoff in Georgia here in early December. If you recall from 2020, those runoffs after that election were actually in January. Georgia changed its state law to move those runoff elections up, so they will be coming up in the next two to three weeks. We will come back to that because it has a lot to do with the big man in Mar-a-Lago and what he is likely going to announce tonight. In New Hampshire, many of us thought and again, guys, it wasn't just me. The polls were showing this over and over again. The Real Clear Politics average showed that Don Baldock was really inching up on Maggie Hassan there in the Granite State, the state of New Hampshire, the second in the nation primary state every four years for the presidential elections. And now Don Baldock just got absolutely blown out by Maggie Hassan. In Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro obliterated Doug Mastriano, who was one of the foremost so-called ultra-MAGA candidates, you might say. Did not have a good showing, to put it mildly. Josh Shapiro utterly annihilated him statewide in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Mehmet Oz failed to defeat the human vegetable known as John Fetterman. And that is another major point of deep thinking, pondering, and analysis coming out of this election cycle is... It appears that what happened in Pennsylvania, because the polls did start to shift towards Dr. Oz a little bit after that unspeakably catastrophic debate performance by John Fetterman, but Pennsylvania has very, very liberal early voting laws, mail-in balloting laws, and so forth, ballot harvesting, in the, especially in the urban centers of Philadelphia and perhaps just to a slightly lesser extent, Pittsburgh. And that is another thing to take away from this election. That's going to be actually one of the big takeaways from this election, all the various discussions that I have had. That's what the folks are talking about, and rightfully so, is there have now been two elections back-to-back, 2020 and 2022, where the Democratic Party has simply destroyed, destroyed the Republican Party 
when it comes to all things early vote, vote by mail related. Now, if you go back to the 2020 election, that election, of course, took place in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many states amended their election laws. Some of them did so properly via the legislature. Even Morse did so unilaterally and in legally dubious fashion via administrative fiat. The Supreme Court has a mixed record at best, shall we say, on actually hearing these cases, which is a polite way of saying they have basically shunned it and avoided it. But what the Democrats have very shrewdly done is they have taken this monumental shift in how U.S. elections are decided and have established it in the minds of the American people, in the minds of the median voter as the new normal. So all of these changes to election laws, weeks and weeks on end, I mean, some of these states are voting upwards of four or five weeks on the early vote count. Absentee balloting, mass mail-in balloting for whoever wants it. Ballot harvesting is legal in a lot of states, guys. It's not legal in my state of Florida, but it is legal in a lot of states. Ballot harvesting referring to the practice of third parties mass collecting ballots for drop-offs. The Democrats have taken all of these rule changes, and that is the new normal of how elections are currently constituted and decided in the U.S. I don't need to be the first person to tell you what the glaring problems of this are. Besides the axiomatic, the obvious self-evident fact that weeks and weeks of balloting, mail-in balloting, oftentimes absent anything as rudimentary as signature verification, permitting third-party ballot harvesters to mass collect and dump off these ballots. The obvious fact that this permits wide-scale fraud on a level that a very, very simple kind of show-up-to-vote-with-ID on election day system would simply not permit. The other obvious, obvious factors, and this is what I think happened, really, in the Pennsylvania Senate race. The obvious other thing that happens here And this is a problem with early voting more generally. You know, in fact, I've been criticizing early voting since I was a first-year law student. I have always thought that early voting is inherently problematic. It's self-defeating. The nature of election day is that it should be election day. It's not election month. It's not election year. An election is supposed to be a snapshot in time. It is a choice. It is a referendum decided by a self-governing polity. We, the people, exercising our sovereignty and our American constitutional order at a moment in time to render judgment about who we want representing us. It is not a moving target. And if you go back to the 2020 presidential election, the infamous snuffing out of the Hunter Biden Laptop story of the New York Post was all over, subsequently confirmed as legitimate by the New York Times and the various other liberal media gatekeepers a year, year and a half later or so. If you go back to that, as high as one in six Joe Biden voters told pollsters at that time that they would have voted for Trump, not Biden, in the 2020 presidential election if they had known about that story, but it was so suppressed. If you actually take that polling seriously, if you take that one in six number seriously, the math works out 
that big tech effectively gave the election to Joe Biden. Well, I have to think that a fairly similar dynamic was at work, at least to a large extent, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania this cycle, namely that so many ballots had already been rendered for John Fetterman against Dr. Mehmet Oz. The big tech suppression story, not there this time, so it's not a perfect analogy, but you get the point. Not that Mehmet Oz was a, was a particularly perfect candidate, by the way. Not that Herschel Walker down in Georgia was a was and and, and is a per, a particularly perfect candidate. I do hope that he wins his runoff against Raphael Warnock. But there certainly is an element to the unraveling of this mess last Tuesday that has to do with candidate quality. I think that concern is a little overstated for the most part, but it definitely is a legitimate concern much of the time. Doug Mastriano, who we already mentioned, had no business whatsoever running statewide in Pennsylvania. Doug Mastriano would be a perfectly fine U.S. congressman from somewhere deep down in Alabama or Wyoming or something like that. But it's kind of common sense that you shouldn't be running very, 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 not just substantively right-wing. He, he, here's the key thing that I think Trump shifted the entire paradigm on. Not just substantively right-wing on the issues, which Mastriano was, but also attitudinally and rhetorically right-wing as far as what you were choosing to talk about, what you were emphasizing. In the particular context of Mastriano, that includes things like January 6th, whether the 2020 election was stolen, things of that nature. He really was, to use the jargon of the day, a quote-unquote ultra-MAGA candidate. To perhaps a slightly lesser extent, Carrie Lake in Arizona was as well. Carrie Lake was a much more promising candidate, and I, I do hope that she runs again sometime. Perhaps emphasizing a slightly different set of issues, if she was just incredibly gifted as far as her treatment of the media on the campaign trail, is very kind of Ron DeSantis-esque, truly kind of camera-ready. I question the extent to which Carrie Lake effectively switched from primary mode to general election mode. My friends in Arizona say that she did not have very good general election outreach or Hispanic outreach. There are various elements of the Lake campaign that I think should come under intense scrutiny if she chooses to run again, but... She was more promising candidate Mastriano, but she was so-called ultra-maga to an extent, right? As far as just the various things that she was talking about here. And I think for these reasons, many folks are talking about blaming Donald Trump for what went wrong last Tuesday. I think that Donald Trump bears a lot of the blame for what, what went wrong last Tuesday. He does not bear the exclusive amount of blame by any means whatsoever. From my perspective, this was an across-the-board, an across-the-board dropping of the ball. Everyone basically got caught with their pants down, with their boxers somewhere down around the ankles. Trump did not help. Let's say that as explicitly as possible. Donald Trump did not help. With all of the intense over and over again effort 
to make this election about himself. Even the rally in Ohio the night before the election with J.D. Vance, who thank goodness won. J.D. Vance will be an outstanding senator. I cannot personally wait for Senator J.D. Vance come January 2023. But even at that rally in Ohio with J.D. the night before the election, Trump was still making it about himself. He's going to make it about himself tonight as well when he plans to announce his run for 2024 at Mar-a-Lago here in South Florida, paying no attention whatsoever to the fact that that is probably not going to help Herschel Walker in his upcoming run in Georgia, which, of course, is a legitimate purple swing state nowadays. So Donald Trump did not help here. One of the remarkable statistics is that despite the fact that Republicans won the national popular vote in the congressional races by four and a half percent, despite that, they lost independence. That is a staggering, staggering thing to ponder. Republicans won the national popular vote in the congressional races by four and a half percent, but they lost the national independent vote. And they lost the national independent vote, by the way, given a climate with 40 year high inflation, a human corpse of a president who can barely speak coherently. And with the Democrats, you know, all the talk about the Republican candidate quality with the Democrats running people like John Fetterman, for God's sake in Pennsylvania. So why do Republicans lose the independent vote? I think it's very difficult to escape the conclusion that part of this has to do with the Trump effect. I think independent voters, given all the myriad problems that America currently faces, and there are many, are sick of the day-to-day drama. They're just sick of it. And frankly, I don't blame them. A few other things to bear in mind here, though. If you go down the polling and you look at a little four-by-four quadrant, so you've got married men, married women, unmarried men, unmarried women. This is another statistic that I take away from this that I think is really just very telling. And it's not like it's not a fun thing to talk about. Republicans won three of those four quadrants. They won married men. They won married women. They even won unmarried men. They got utterly annihilated when it comes to unmarried women. Utterly annihilated. Lost by 30 to 40 points. So that one quadrant of that little two by two XY axes graph, they just got utterly destroyed there. Now, I haven't seen cross-tab exit polling at a deep enough level to see what exactly unmarried women were voting for so en masse to make them vote for the left side of the ledger, but I don't think it necessarily takes a political scientist PhD to figure out. It seems fairly obvious, and this is not a fun thing again for staunch pro-lifers like myself to say, that the abortion issue did carry more weight. You know, for all of us who dismissed the notion that abortion would be a winning issue for Democrats this term, more egg on our face. It looks like it actually was more of a winning issue for them than many of us would have recognized. That's not to say that it was the reason the election went this way. There's also plenty of other data points cutting the other direction. 
Ron DeSantis, who won by a gobsmacking, astounding 19.4% margin here in the once purple state, now solidly red state of Florida. He signed an abortion ban into law. Greg Abbott won by double digits in the state of Texas. He signs uh, SB8, the heartbeat law that had gained much national notoriety. Any number of other examples of that, Governor DeWine in Ohio has signed staunch pro-life legislation. He won by a massive margin, a far wider margin actually statewide in the Buckeye State than J.D. Vance even won. So there are any number of other data points cutting the other way. I do not want to overstate this conclusion, but it does appear to be the case that at least for that unmarried women sub-demographic, the abortion issue really did help the Democrats. And I think one conclusion that pro-lifers have to take away, I've discussed on this show a little bit, I have been one of the leading proponents in the conservative movement of the idea that, that the U.S. Constitution is not neutral. It's not silent on the abortion issue, but rather when the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause speaks of protecting persons, that that was and should be understood to encompass unborn persons with the logical conclusion there that abortion is effectively unconstitutional nationally. I've been, I've been one of the leading proponents of that argument, really. But for reasons not of principle, but of prudence, it seems like one obvious conclusion from this midterm election cycle that pro-lifers should focus right now more at the state level, less at the national level, more on incremental policies, less on the ultimately desired outcome, which is, of course, an all-out ban with obvious dispensations for the life of the mother and so forth. But we need, to, we need to focus incrementally because the polity, the populace, and the culture right now are simply not where the absolutist pro-life sentiment is. And I do not say the term absolutist pro-life sentiment with any degree of denigration whatsoever. I count myself firmly among them, on the contrary. But that is just simply the, rea the reality of where we are right now when it comes to that particular issue. So unmarried women broke by simply an astounding margin for Democrats. Independence broke for the Democrats as well. But again, it, what, this was not a referendum on Donald Trump. Trump did not help. This is not a referendum on Republican abortion policy, although it seems that the Democrats were able to mobilize at least parts of their base on that particular issue there. There are any number of other factors at work here as well. So J.D. Vance, who we just mentioned, the incoming senator from the great state of Ohio, he had an op-ed on Monday, that will be yesterday, at the American Conservative with the title, Don't Blame Trump. But if you get past the title, the piece itself was actually very nuanced. It wasn't quite necessarily just saying what the title implied. Rather, what J.D. basically argued in that piece is that the number one reason that Republicans lost was the monumental fundraising disadvantage that the Republican candidates had vis-a-vis -vis their Democratic rivals, that the RNC had vis-a-vis -vis the DNC, and so forth. 
And these differentials really, really matter. I mean, for anyone who has ever worked on a campaign, this is a stupidly obvious thing to say, you need money. You need money to get the direct mail, to get the door knocking, to get the advertising, advertising perhaps above all these days to carpet bomb the airwaves. This is expensive stuff. But in all these various races in the Senate, Masters against Kelly in Arizona, Laxalt against Cortez Masto in Nevada, Warnock against Walker in Georgia being a big one, you name it. Republicans were dramatically, dramatically outspent. And Act Blue, which is the Democrats kind of online small donor agglomeration platform, at this point is orders of magnitude more effective than the Republican equivalent, which is called WinRed. In fact, in J.D.'s excellent op-ed at the, American, at the American Conservative on Monday where he made a lot of these points, he didn't even use the term WinRed, which I interpreted as being a slightly coy kind of dig via omission. Maybe I'm overreading it. I'm not sure. The upshot is that the RNC really, really, really needs to get their act together. From a fundraising perspective, from a perspective of what has amounted these past two election cycles to unilateral abandonment of the entire vote-by-mail ballot harvesting regime, crazy, crazy stuff. Look, the end goal, the end goal, to go back to my longstanding gripes about early voting and the notion that the election is, is a snapshot in time, not a moving target. Sidebar, by the way, what actually is the other argument? I mean, like, literally, like, what is the argument that an election should be a moving target? It, it's facially nonsensical. It's ludicrous on its face. Otherwise, you would just be having perpetual elections, which I guess <laughs> I guess the Israelis have done that for the past few years. I'm being a little cheeky and tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, that's not necessarily the most stable way of running a country. It's a snapshot in time. So the long-term proper goal, from my perspective, should be a straightforward congressional statute, ideally a constitutional amendment, but some sort of law to stipulate that there is one national election day, call it a national holiday, stop the U.S. Postal Service, all the various accoutrements that come with the national holiday. It's a paid, paid day, paid time off, and that is your day to vote. That's not to say that there will be no dispensations from that. Of course, there will be active service military, elderly in hospitals and senior living facilities who cannot make it to the polls, things of that nature. But the point is, to use a legal term of art, there is a rebuttable presumption that you will go to vote on said national election day. You have to overcome that presumption to get an absentee ballot. That is not the way it works now in most states in these United States. So that is the long-term goal. And Republicans need to prioritize that extremely high on their list of priorities for the next time they get power back, if they ever get power back. But in at least the short term, Republicans have to try their best to use these various tools to their advantage. So in Florida, for example, we don't have ballot harvesting. 
but California does. And as Christina Pusha from the Ron DeSantis team tweeted this morning, it appears that California Republicans were able to actually utilize ballot harvesting to no small extent to their ends. So I think the goal here has to be something along the lines of using these means in the short to perhaps midterm to ultimately eradicate them in the mid to long term. Now, it's not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. Ballot harvesting, by very definition of what it is, is going to disproportionately help high-density urban populations, college dorm rooms, things of that nature. It doesn't necessarily help the typical Republican voters in suburban and rural America. It's very hard to ballot harvest a country road, is what I'm trying to say. But perhaps Republicans can focus on ballot harvesting in nursing facilities, senior living facilities, the elderly population, of course, being a core Republican voter block going back decades. Perhaps they can do a better job of trying to mobilize the churches. America has declining church attendance, which is a whole nother conversation, but we could, we should try to kind of mobilize at least theologically conservative churches the to, to, a, to a greater extent, at least in these core swing states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and so forth here. From my perspective, we really need as well across the board change as far as the leadership of this party at this point. There is simply no escaping the obvious conclusion. And, you know, that that four and a half percentage point delta gap in the national popular vote is really the one thing that kind of just, ah, it's so frustrating when you look at that compared to the results. But you can't ignore the results. The results are not simply not good. And I think... We need sweeping change as far as personnel and leadership is concerned. That means Ronna McDaniel at the Republican National Committee, she should step down. I do not think she will. And in fact, I think that she will stay in place. But she should step down. I see no reason whatsoever why Kevin McCarthy should be the next Speaker of the House. I see no reason whatsoever why Mitch McConnell should be at this point, still the leader of the Republican Senate caucus. At least in the Senate, it is not entirely obvious who would replace McConnell. That is a huge problem, and perhaps that militates in favor of keeping him for simple lack of a better option. It's not exactly obvious, to put it mildly, that Rick Scott, the junior senator from Florida, would be preferable, given the fact that he was just heading up the NRSC and did not exactly do a stellar job, shall we say. But I would prefer that all these people at this point step aside. And among other topics, that brings us to one of the final simmering takeaways that as a Floridian, I feel a special need to talk about with y'all, which is Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Florida, and all of that. So I wrote my column last week. The column kind of or I should, I should say the title of the column kind of gives away the game. The title of the column is, quote, Florida, the new capital of red state America. Florida was the brightest bright spot for Republicans last Tuesday. There were other bright spots, to be clear. In Iowa, Kim Reynolds did a fantastic job winning statewide re-election for Iowa governor by upwards of 20 points. The Iowa GOP had 
a fantastic night. Sh- special shout out, by the way, to incoming Iowa Attorney General Brenna Bird, who's a law school friend of mine. Very proud of you, Brenna, and happy for you. In New York State, my home state, actually, Lee Zeldin lost the governor race, but by a very respectable margin, roughly five points or so. And his coattails were big enough to flip at least four tightly contested congressional races. Long Island, of all places, now appears to be bright red. Really crazy, honestly. Especially for those of us who grew up in the New York area. Long Island appears to be bright red. Sean Patrick Maloney, the DCCC chair, has gone down to Mike Lawler. That's actually my hometown's incoming district due to redistricting. First time in decades that the sitting DCCC chair has lost a congressional campaign. So it looks like Lee Zeldin and Ron DeSantis are really the two men responsible for the House pulling out this this congressional majority by the skin of their teeth. Zeldin, due to the length of his coattails and carrying over at least four other congressmen, DeSantis, because he was able to get passed and upheld by the courts, an outstanding congressional map, an outstanding gerrymandered map that effectively guaranteed that 20 of the 28 seats here in the state of Florida would be Republican seats as opposed to the 16 to 12 split that the more milquetoast Florida legislature had proposed. DeSantis and his very capable chief counsel, Ryan Newman, created a much, much better map. And because the margin is so tight, it appears like that better map in Florida, as well as Lee Zeldin's coattails, are really the two things that are going to give Kevin McCarthy, or Kevin McCarthy's rival, the speakership in the new Congress come January. Lee Zeldin, by the way, I think is one candidate who's getting a lot of talk about replacing possibly Ronna McDaniel as the RNC chair. I think the RNC could do a heck of a lot worse than putting the guy who just massively shifted New York state of all states rightward. The RNC could do a heck of a lot worse than putting Lee Zeldin in charge of the operation right now. Really, really crazy. Every single state, or excuse me, every single county in New York State actually voted more Republican this time around compared to the midterm election four years ago. Every single county in the state. So Lee Zeldin lost, but it was really a loss name only. He did quite well. So let's go back to Florida. So Florida was really the story of the night from a Republican perspective here. Ron DeSantis won by 19.4 points. I, I cannot describe to you how staggering that, that number is. Florida, lest you have forgotten, was the state that decided the 2000 presidential election, as we already said, by 537 votes. I mean, go back as recently as four years ago. In the midterm cycle of 2018, DeSantis himself defeated Andrew Gillum, who is scandal-marred and being prosecuted for all so- all sorts of sordid stuff. If you remember that story about him waking up in a Miami Beach hotel, drugged out with like a what appeared to be a gay prostitute. I mean, a horrific candidate. Well, Ron DeSantis barely beat Andrew Gillum in 2018 by 0.4%. Like barely over 30,000 votes. In fact, in that same cycle in 2018, Rick Scott won his Senate race over Bill Nelson by an even smaller percent, 0.12%. But nonetheless, four years later, Ron DeSantis won 62 of Florida's 67 counties. 
including, by the way, all of the Tampa Bay area, all of the Jacksonville area, and two of the three counties in the broader Miami, South Florida area. He won Miami-Dade County and Palm Beach County. He only lost Broward County. He won Miami-Dade County, which is a 70-plus percent Hispanic county, Ron DeSantis did, by double digits, by over 11 points. Marco Rubio, by the way, also won Miami-Dade County by roughly nine points or so. Rubio himself utterly demolished Val Demings by roughly 16 points or so. In Florida in general, every statewide Republican won all of the various cabinet positions, agriculture commissioner, attorney general, Ashley Moody won by over 20 points, her re-election for attorney general. Republicans have now gained a super majority, so a filibuster-proof majority in both chambers in Tallahassee. It's really remarkable. Over the past few years, Florida now looks a lot more like Oklahoma or Wyoming, like a deep, deep, deep red state. Crazy, crazy stuff. And that is but one reason why you're starting to hear a lot, a lot of chatter about Ron DeSantis 2024. Now, I have talked about this a little bit on this show and in various other media appearances. I've tended to avoid it because it feels premature, and I'm not going to go deep into it right now because I still think it's premature. But what I have said and I will say is that if Ron runs for president, if DeSantis runs for president, I'm with him. Because that man simply gets it. He simply gets it. I don't know how else to say it. If you look at the shift in voter registration from when he took over governor in 2018 to now, there has been a shift of 600,000 from registered Democrats to registered Republicans. It is the first time in the history of the state of Florida that registered Republicans outnumber registered Democrats, and they do so by over 300,000 people. He has literally proved the truth of the talking point that people vote with their feet. Since the onset of COVID, Florida has gained 394,000 new active voters. They are twice as likely to be registered Republicans as registered Democrats. Translation, Republicans moved here en masse during COVID to be free of COVID hysteria. By the way, I'm one of them. He has been a transformational leader of this state. He has moved it from purple state to red state territory, and he has done so. Here's the most key point of all. He has done so with an affirmative vision, an optimistic vision. He has delivered all across the board. He is not wedded to the outmoded platitudes of yesteryear. He has shown a willingness to prudentially use government power to secure conservative ends, especially when those ends redound to the popularity of the Floridian people. I'm talking here about his fight with the Walt Disney Company. I'm talking here about his use of statewide power to ban various COVID vaccine passports and mandates. To keep kids from being masked up in elementary school. So if I'm looking at that track record in Florida, 
If I am looking at the track record of someone who is winning Florida by a nearly 20-point margin statewide, who is flipping Miami-Dade County and doing so by double-digit points, who is an absolutely prolific fundraiser, who is sharp as a wit, and I'm comparing that to what you're going to hear tonight at Mar-a-Lago, I know where I'm casting my lot. If that is what transpires, I am with... Ron DeSantis, period, full stop, end of story. And it appears I'm not the only one, by the way. There was some polling that was released on Monday from WPA Intel. That's Chris Wilson's polling outfit. They're an outstanding polling outfit. In Iowa, DeSantis up 11 points on Trump. New Hampshire, DeSantis up 15 points on Trump. In Florida, here where I live, DeSantis up 26 points. 26 points on Trump. In Georgia, DeSantis up 20 points on Trump. And there's been a huge flip in all of those margins just over the past couple of months. That's only going to heighten in the aftermath of these midtermers where you, where you saw such a stark contrast between the affirmative positive vision of Ron DeSantis achieving conservative results compared with the petty vindictiveness and fighting of last year's fights that we sometimes see from the former president. Now, I say all that as somewhat of an aside. I do think that the Republican Party needs to fundamentally get its own house in order right now before diving in headfirst into this 2024 debate. That's the reason that I have not talked about it a whole lot. They need to figure out this ballot harvesting stuff, the early voting, the mail-in voting. What the hell is going on at the RNC? What the hell is going on with this catastrophic fundraising disadvantage? So all of this is frankly more important, at least right now, than the 2024 sweepstakes. But with Trump and Mar-a-Lago tonight, those sweepstakes are going to accelerate quickly. Trump, over the past week, has doubled down on his obtuse and cartoonish attacks on Ron DeSantis, this Ron DeSanctimonious moniker, this godforsaken nickname that is just awful and reeks of desperation. So that conversation is going to accelerate, but I do think for now Republicans really, really, really need to focus on getting their own house in order. For now, the bright spots are Florida, New York state of all states, a few other states like Iowa come immediately to mind there. But really, folks, look to Florida. I'm biased because I live here. I'm biased because I think our governor is awesome. But you really, really should look to Florida for an example of how this is done. But we'll be back with you next week with our regular programming for now. Hope you've enjoyed this Midterm election post-mortem, however dour that it may have been, hopefully there are some nuggets of optimism there for you. So we will see you next time. Until then, I'm Josh Hammer.